to the mountain by himself alone. Now when evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into the boat, and went over to the sea toward Capernaum, and it was already dark, and Jesus had not come to them. Then the sea arose because a great wind was blowing. So when they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and drawing near the boat, and they were afraid. But he said to them, It is I. Do not be afraid. Then they willingly received him into the boat. And immediately the boat was at the land where they were going. I better take a drink of water. Yeah, this is the time for you to clear your throat too. Because today we're going to be like a little Pentecostal church. It won't be just me talking and you listening. It will be me talking and you going, Amen! Yes, Amen. We come to the second miracle in John chapter 6. Jesus has fed the 5,000 in verses 1 through 15. Scarcity has become surplus. Now Jesus will walk on the water in a stormy sea. Jesus demonstrates that he is both the sovereign and the savior and the great deliverer. That he delivers not just from the water, but he delivers from every circumstance whereby we experience fear. Remember, the disciples are setting sail across the lake. The multitude, full and filled with loaves and fish, have attempted to take Jesus by force to make him both lunch ticket and Lord. They want Jesus to be a political king, a social king, a person who will deliver them in their physical and social circumstances. We sometimes forget that the disciples faced a unique temptation at this point. They are the confidants and close associates of Jesus. The crowds have come. They want to make Jesus the king, but he understands their motives. The disciples, however, are in a different circumstance. Rather than get caught up in the drama of celebrity and power, Jesus will order them across the lake. They wanted to be princes in an earthly kingdom. Jesus wanted them to be disciples and servants in a broken and a sinful world and rulers in a heavenly kingdom. Jesus needed to make the disciples understand something. That they were headed in a wrong direction and he was going to correct that direction. Sometimes Jesus will send a storm and the storm will redirect us in a way that we need to go. In Mark's Gospel, in Mark chapter 6, verse 45, we read, Immediately he, that is Jesus, made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethesda, while he sent the multitude away, or Bethsaida. In, in Matthew's Gospel, in Matthew chapter 14, verse 22, we read, Immediately Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he sent the multitudes away. Jesus wanted to put some distance between the disciples and the crowd. 
put some distance between them and the test or the temptation, but he would have a different test in a different circumstance. Jesus told them to get into the boat. The word in Mark and Matthew's gospel, he made them, means compelled. It can sometimes mean to compel by force or to compel by persuasion or to compel by constraint. I picture Jesus herding the disciples into the tiny vessel. He gets them into the boat. He goes out to the to the water and then he wades into the water and he pushes the boat in the direction that he wants them to go. Why is that important? Because the disciples are about to face a life-threatening storm. And it's one thing to face a life-threatening storm, a circumstance that overwhelms you and fills you with fear. And it's another thing to understand that Jesus has set you in the boat and Jesus has set you off, that Jesus sees you in the storm, that he has the ability to, to walk into the circumstance supernaturally and then deliver you to the shore that he's always intended you to go. It's one thing to face hardship and pain and suffering and circumstance, and it's another thing to come to grips with Jesus set you there. Most people don't welcome hardship. J.J. sang about it. People don't invite tragedy into their lives. We, We don't want to lose our job. We don't want to lose our health. We don't want to lose our home. We don't want to lose our wife. We don't want to lose our husband. We don't want to lose our children. We want to shelter our loved ones from the worst storms, from the financial storms, from the relationship storms, from the health storms. And when you are in a hurricane and the hurricane force winds threaten to destroy you and threaten your family, we all have to come to grips and we have to face our fear. Edgar Wallace said, fear is a tyrant and a despot more terrible than the rack, more potent than a snake. But if you read Matthew and you read Mark and you read Luke and you read John, do you realize that never, never, never in the New Testament do you find Jesus afraid? Jesus is never afraid. Someone has used the acronym fear. False evidence appearing real. I think that there is such a thing biblically as healthy fear. Healthy fear is when you look both ways to cross the street. I also read a plaque where it said that the fear of God will make all other fears go away. I think that that's true. But there is a test. The test to fear. Look at verse 16. It says, Now when evening came, his disciples went down to the lake. The test for the disciples begins when the sun sets. Now when evening came. This will be important later on in our study. The Sea of Galilee, by the way, isn't really much of a sea. The whole lake is about 13 miles long. It's about 6 to 7 miles wide. And that isn't much of a lake by United States standards, but there's enough water there to drown you. And look at verse 17. Got into the boat and went over the sea toward Capernaum. 
And it was already dark and Jesus had not come to them. The boat was a fishing boat. It was perhaps 20 feet long. And here John mentions two things. The sun has gone down, darkness. Jesus hasn't come to them yet. And so we see two ingredients. The absence of light and the absence of Jesus. The absence of light and the absence of Jesus will often create a recipe for fear. You know, some children fear the dark. Several years ago, Karo Yamamoto, a Ph.D. and educational psychologist at the University of Colorado, found the top 20 things that children fear most. Do you know what was at the top of the list? What a child fears most is the loss of a parent. Do you know what was second on the list? Going permanently blind. You see, it's one thing to be afraid of the dark, and it's another thing to be afraid of the dark forever. On the list included academic retainment. That means being held back a grade, parents fighting, getting caught stealing, being suspected of lying, bad grades, going to the principal, being ridiculed in class, moving to a new school, horrible nightmares, getting lost, being picked last for the team. For you, those might seem to be childish fears. But then you grow up and you have your own set of fears. The fear of being accepted. The fear of being rejected. John Corson tells the story of a Sunday school teacher who walks into a combination third and fourth grade classroom just in time to hear a nine-year-old repeat this prayer. Dear God, Bless our mothers and bless our fathers and bless our brothers and bless our sisters. And oh, by the way, God, take care of yourself because without you, we're strong. That's good. Jesus keeps us from sinking. With Jesus, we are unsinkable. But John tells us Jesus had not come to them. It would appear that Jesus had told them to row out some distance, turn around, and pick him up. He comes to the shore. He pushes them out towards Bethesda. The wind's coming. They're trying to come back. Jesus doesn't show up. They find themselves in the middle of the lake. Jesus was going to send the crowd away and then pray for them. In Mark chapter 6, verse 46, it says, And when he sent them away, he departed to the mountain to pray. Sometimes Jesus sets us in a storm, and then he prays for us. And the fact that you find yourself in a storm doesn't mean that God has forgotten you or that God has forsaken you. It was Neil Strait who wrote, Prayer lifts the heart above the battles of life and gives us a glimpse of God's resources, which spell victory and hope. You may not see him, but he's there. By the way, do you pray when you find yourself in trouble? Is your first response panic or is your first response prayer? We often pray that our circumstances will change. When we do pray, that here's the prayer, Lord, give me out of this. We very rarely pray, God, change my heart. Change my character. Change my attitude. Destroy my pride. Humble me. 
but God's sending a storm. And sometimes He sends a storm for protection, and sometimes He sends a storm for for direction, but sometimes He sends a, a storm for correction. It says in verse 18, then the sea arose, and it it be, because a great wind was blowing, a violent storm hit them and then pulled them towards the middle of the lake. They were literally blown off course. And as you can imagine, they're rowing and they continue to row. And as they continue to row, instead of heading for the shoreline, they keep getting pushed back and pushed back. And they keep getting pushed back into the middle of the lake. In Matthew chapter 14, verse 24, it says, But the boat was now in the middle of the sea, tossed by the waves, for the wind was contrary. In Mark 14, 24, where it says tossed by the waves, the word tossed or buffeted literally means tormented. It was actually as if the storm and the trial was tormenting them. Right when they thought that they were going to get a little bit of hope, it pushed them back into the middle of the sea. It pushed them back into the middle of, of the lake. It pushed them back. And have you ever been in a circumstance where you're desperately, you're desperately trying to get to the place of physical or financial safety? And as soon as you make your way close to the shore, the wind blows you back into the middle of the lake. The disciples are about three and a half miles to shore. That's the point that the passage is trying to get you. The lake is 13 miles long, seven to eight miles wide. Back in those days, if you're in the middle of the lake, the point that John is trying to get you is that you're too far away to swim to safety. In Mark's Gospel, chapter 6, verses 47 and 48, it says, Now when evening came, the boat was in the middle of the sea, and he, that is Jesus, was alone on the land. Then he saw them straining at the rowing, for the wind was against them. Now about the fourth watch of the night he came to them, walking on the sea, and would have passed them by. The crowds are gone. Jesus is alone on the mountain. Now, here's what's interesting. He sees them. Remember what I've already told you? It's the middle of the night. The storm is blowing. Jesus is praying. Can you see a tiny little boat in the middle of a lake three and a half miles away? No. That's a miracle. Jesus set them there. Jesus sees them there. He sees them struggling. And that's exactly part of the point that you should derive from this particular passage. God sees all. God knows all. God has all power. And Jesus sees you in the storm. He sees you when you don't think that He's looking. Jesus sees you and it's hard to rest in a storm. You're in a boat and the waves are crashing in and you're taking in water and you grasp the nearest oar and you start frantically churning the water. You want to get to a place of safety. Again, Mark's Gospel tells us it's the fourth watch of the night. The fourth watch of the night in that world was between 3 o'clock in the morning and 6 o'clock in the morning. What point did Jesus push them into the lake? It's when the sun went down. That means that they've been rowing 
Not for one hour, not for two hours, not for three hours, not for four hours, not for five hours, not for six hours, not for seven hours, but but above eight hours they've been rowing and straining and their arms are tired and their clothes are wet and they are tired and they are scared and they think that their life could end at any moment. It says in verse 19, so when they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and drawing near the boat, and they were afraid. Again, the Greeks measured distance with an expression called stadia. We get the word stadium from that. A stadia was the amount of space that it took for a Roman chariot to go around a chariot track. And so here it means about three or three and a half miles from the nearest shoreline. Again, John doesn't want to give you a Greek lesson in in distance. He wants you to understand the circumstances that they find themselves in the middle of the lake and that they are terrified. They are tired and they are terrified. It's safe to say scared out of their wits. Their strength is gone. And that's part of the challenge. Remember what I said. Jesus placed them there. You know what that means? They're in the middle of God's will. They're not outside of God's will. Do you ever find yourself in a circumstance and you say, how did I get here? Why am I here? I must be out of God's will. Lord, why would you put me in the midst of such a terrible trial, such a terrible storm, such a difficult hardship? And they are in the dark. And being in the dark certainly makes the adventure, do you think, more terrifying or less terrifying? Yeah, you're exactly right. It's more. You can handle the circumstance if you can see what's in front of you, but it is in the pitch black darkness of the night. They are in the dark. And sometimes in our trial, in our pain, in our circumstances, we find ourselves in the dark and we don't know why it's happening. And we'll pray prayers like, Lord, why is this happening? Lord, why is this happening? Why is why is my wife ill? Why is my husband ill? Why is this happening? Lord, why are we going to lose our home? Why did I lose my job? Why is this happening? I've got good news and I've got bad news for you. The The bad news is, even if you knew the reason why it was happening, it wouldn't change the way that you feel. The good news is, in spite of all of the pain and all of the sorrow and all of the problems, Jesus is willing to show up. Jesus has placed them there, prays for them there, sees them there. And like I said earlier, there seems to be several kinds of storms. There are correcting storms. There are perfecting storms. The prophet Jonah gives us an example of a correcting storm. You know the story. God had a job for Jonah to do. He was supposed to go to Nineveh, and he was supposed to preach the gospel. But he hated the Ninevites, and so he tried to run away from the will of God. He tries to run away from the plan of God, and then God blew him in the direction that he needed to go. But it appears that this storm... The one that the disciples face is a perfect 
correcting storm. It's a storm that's intended to change their heart. It's a, it's a storm that is intended to transform their character. It's a storm that's intended to get them to look at Jesus and trust Jesus and believe in Jesus. And people tend to gravitate to one of two extremes. They fear everything or they fear nothing. And like I said to you before, there is such a thing as a healthy fear. There's a reason why you should look both ways before you cross the street. There's a reason if you stay longer than three minutes under the water that you should be terrified. You were never intended to breathe under the water. Jay Adams wrote, Love looks for opportunities to give. It asks, What can I do for another? Fear keeps a wary eye on the possible consequences and asks, What will he do to me? Love thinks no evil. Fear thinks about little else. Unquote. That's so true. When are you most likely to feel free or feel fear? You're most likely to feel fear when you're in the dark. You're most likely to feel fear when you don't sense the presence of Jesus. And I want to share something with you. The Bible makes it abundantly clear that the opposite of love isn't hate, but it's fear. In 1 John chapter 4, verse 17, years later, after this incident in the boat, John writes, Love has been made perfect or complete among us in this, that we might have boldness in the day of judgment. Because as he is, so are we in the world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, because fear involves torment. But he who fears has not been made perfect or complete in love. Do you know what the difference between love and fear is? Fear, if you were to take it down and you were to boil it down to its very essence, is loss. That's what fear is. You're most afraid when you could lose your job, lose your health, lose your home, lose your future, lose something that you love and that you want and that you want to keep. Love if you were to boil it down to its essence, would be this. The Bible says, Greater love hath no man than this, that he's willing to lay down his life for a friend. The ultimate expression of love is sacrifice. You see, when you boil love down to its basic ingredient, it too is loss. So what's the difference between fear and love? In fear, loss is involuntary. In love... Sacrifice is a choice and a decision that you make. Jesus comes at the darkest time. Jesus comes at the darkest moment. Often when the circumstances seem hopeless, the Lord shows up. You'll remember in the Old Testament for the Hebrew children in the fiery furnace, for Daniel in the lion's den, it's when you smell the sulfur. It's when you feel the heat. It's when you can Feel the lion's breath and you see the lion's yellowed teeth that you begin to panic. Lord, okay, I'm game. How are you going to get me out of this one? And look what he does. He shows up. The answer to fear. Look at verse 20. 
But he said to them, It is I. Do not be afraid. Don't you see the humor here? The disciples are afraid. They're terrified. Jesus identifies himself. You might ask yourself, well, how come they didn't recognize him? Well, because you don't expect to see your best friend walking on the water when you're in the middle of a lake. Uh, Some of you saw the terrible movie. Rod Serling had a TV series called The Twilight Zone, and there was this movie, um, Twilight Zone the movie, and there was an episode with John Lithgow. He plays this nauseated and terrified passenger on what appears to be a doomed flight, and his worst fears are realized when he opens the portal and he sees this person with wild eyes hysterically screaming, clinging to the wind, wing of the plane going, He shuts the window. That's going to be your response. When you're in a plane and you're flying at twenty or 30,000 feet, do you expect to see someone hanging from the wing of the, of the plane? The answer is no. And by the way, whenever you're in the midst of a storm, a trial, or a fear, insane laughter is not the most comforting way to give hope. The words of Jesus bring hope. Jesus set you there. Jesus sees you there. And watch as he comes to the disciples in the storm. So what's the answer to fear? The word of Jesus delivers from fear. He says to them, it is I. Do not be afraid. Remember, the, the disciples at first thought Jesus was a spirit. He thought that, that they, he was a disembodied spirit. And in this impossible situation, Jesus does the impossible. He walks on the water. Some of you are familiar with the Egyptian language of, of the ancient Egyptians. They, they wrote in a script called hieroglyphics. The ancient Egyptians wrote in a kind of picture language. They would use pictures to represent ideas and the ancient Egyptians used two symbols to make the word impossible in order to 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 write the word impossible you would scroll little waves in three lines and then the next symbol is you put two tiny feet walking on the water the word impossible impossible People can't walk on water. When I, when I go to Israel uh, next week, um, we'll be on the Sea of Galilee. No one will attempt to walk on the water. If you do, you'll be in big trouble. I love going there. When you go to the different sites in Israel, you'll go to a place and people have put shrines and churches in those places that they believe that Jesus did specific things. One of the great things about being on the Sea of Galilee is there's no shrine anywhere. No one goes and says, this is the place where Jesus walked on the water. If they were to go to the place where Jesus walked on the water, you'd have to start in Capernaum and go all the way to the middle of the lake. Because remember, he doesn't just walk for a few moments and he doesn't walk for a few yards. He doesn't even walk simply for a few miles, but it's about three and a half miles. So what's the answer to fear? The word of Jesus. 
It delivers us from your from fear. It's I. Don't be afraid. And sometimes, again, Jesus will do the impossible to rescue us from impossible circumstances. And I want you to understand something in this story. Now, this is the Pentecostal portion. In this story, where do we find our friends? In a boat. Where in a boat? On a lake. And what is the lake full of? Water. And what are they afraid of? The storm and the water, they're afraid of dying in the water. And Jesus walks. Jesus walks. Jesus does the impossible on the very object that terrifies them most and threatens to sink their ship and take their lives. And that's exactly what Jesus will do for you. He will show up on the thing that you fear the most. Have you ever had Jesus come to you in a hospital room and speak to you? Have you or someone you love ever been diagnosed with a grave illness, a life-threatening disease, and Jesus shows up? Have you ever found yourself in financial distress, in loneliness, in failure, and the thing that you feared the most, Jesus shows up. He comes to you so that he can be with you and comfort you and strengthen you and then do the impossible. And that's to confront the thing that you fear the most. A Christian captain of a large ocean-going vessel was in the middle of a storm and terrified. One of the passengers cried out, What will we do if the ship sinks? And the Christian captain said, I don't know about you, but I'll be embraced in the ever-loving arms of my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Wait, that's not what I want to hear when the ship is going down. I want you to tell me where the lifeboats are. But guess what? The words of Jesus is what really will make all the difference in the world. God's word is filled with comfort and hope. Let me ask you a question. Has it been a while since you've heard the voice of Jesus speak to you in the storm? Speak to you in the midst of the hardship? Two scriptures have served me well in hurting times, and and many of you have have heard me share them with you in really difficult circumstances and painful events. In Romans chapter 15, verse 4, it says, For whatever things were written before were written for our learning, that we, through the patience and the comfort of the scriptures, might have hope. When you're in pain, you need hope. And in Romans 15, 13, it says, Now may the God of hope fill you with joy and peace and believing that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. When you're in pain, often there's a conspicuous lack of joy and a conspicuous lack of peace. So what's stronger? The world's winds or the Lord's voice? What's stronger? The blowing, storming circumstances or the Lord's words. And look what it says in John 6:21. Then they willingly received him into the boat. 
And immediately the boat was at the land where they were going. Where are they on the, on the lake? In the middle of the lake. What happens when Jesus gets into the boat? It becomes a motorboat. That's exactly what's happened. All of a sudden, Jesus gets in the boat and supernaturally, they find themselves on the shore in a place of safety. That, my friends, is a miracle. Chuck Swindoll writes, and I quote, This incident seen by the disciples only serves two purposes. First, it shows the nature of Jesus' true kingship where he rules over every realm, including creation. Nothing is impossible for him, not even walking on water or calming a storm. And second, as Mark Gospels reveals, it shows that the disciples didn't yet understand who Jesus really was. They were greatly astonished and frightened of him. That's what it says in Mark 6, 50 and 51, because they had not gained any insight from the incident of the loaves, but their heart was hardened, it says in verse 52. They did not yet grasp that Jesus was God in the flesh, the sustaining bread of life, a truth that we're going to see him take great pains to explain in the next chapter, unquote. How like Jesus to show up. How like Jesus to show up when the lights are out and the wind is blowing and the hope is gone and the strength is gone. And can you imagine, I somewhat believe that this is one of those circumstances where they wouldn't have been able to raise the oar one more time. When Mary and I were in Albuquerque, we were praying about where we should go as far as planting a church. And I remember as we continued to pray, um, we thought, well, we'll go to Texas. There's a great place in Austin to plant a church. There's a great place in in Houston to plant a church. We thought maybe we would go to Florida and plant a church. And at one point I thought, well, I'll go to Cleveland. I know you're thinking, why Cleveland? Well, because no one would go there in the flesh. You would have to be drawn by the Spirit of God. But I wanted to go to a place where there was water and lots of water. And that wouldn't be Colorado, by the way. And the Lord gave me a scripture. It was Joshua 1.9. Some of you are familiar with it. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and of good courage. Do not be afraid, nor be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. And I said to my wife, isn't that comforting? If we go to Houston, the Lord will be with us. If we go to Florida, the Lord will be with us. If we go to Cleveland, the Lord will be with us. And so we sold our home and we made preparation to come to Colorado. And two weeks after we sold our home, my wife was diagnosed with cancer. And we had to make difficult decisions. Do we stay? Do I continue to work? Do I continue to get health insurance? And as we prayed, and as she received treatment, we postponed and postponed and and postponed our move until she was well. And then we came to Colorado. And when we came to Colorado, we started a Bible study. And people came. And I thought... Well, what if I start a Bible study, but nobody comes? And I remembered that as we prayed and went through the circumstances of my wife's cancer, cancer is hard. 
praying that people will show up at a Bible study, that's pretty easy. And then people came to the Bible study, and then we needed a place to, to meet, and we prayed, Lord, we need a place to meet. And it was easy to believe God for a place to meet, because cancer is hard. But having a place to meet was easy. And then we had to move from the place where we were to this place, and we needed the financial circumstances in order to move into this place, and we didn't have the financial circumstances. And we began to pray, and it was easy to believe God for a financial miracle in order to bring us here. Cancer is hard. But believing God for a miracle to bring us to a building, that's easy. Five years after we got here, my wife the cancer came back, and this time with a vengeance. She had to have both of her breasts removed and part of her chest wall. And we prayed. And it was hard. But you know what? Then there was a series of catastrophes and circumstances in our community, and they were hard. Because losing a child is hard. Cancer is hard. Divorce is hard. Life-threatening illness, that's hard. But the moment Jesus comes into the boat, Jesus promises that he will take you to the shore that he intends you to go to. And when you're in a terrible storm, the worst thing that you can possibly do is cut yourself off from the resources that you needed. I thought Joshua 1.9 meant, I'll be with you if I go to Cleveland. I'll be with you if I go to Florida. I'll be with you if I go to Colorado. But what he meant was, I will be with you in the hard time, in the difficult time, in the stormy time, and the hard time, in the difficult time, and the stormy time will come. But I'll take you to the place where you need to go. And what was the result of the storm for the disciples? They learned a little bit more about themselves, and they certainly learned a little bit more about Jesus. The storm led them to a deeper commitment to the Lord Jesus. Is that what the storms in your life do for you? Do they cause you in humility and patience to trust Him? That's what it's intended to do. Centuries in the spirit before Jesus died, David in the spirit wrote in Psalm 22, 7, All those who see me ridicule me. They shoot out the lip. They shake the head saying, He trusted in the Lord. Let him rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. But Jesus wouldn't come down from the cross. He wouldn't come down from the cross because the place... And the ministry and the purpose that God had ordained for him was to die on that cross for your sins. So that love could become real. And so that love could become eternal. And so that deliverance might be possible. And by the way, deliverance may not take the form that you desire. But deliverance will. But Jesus will deliver you. Jesus will deliver you on his terms. And Jesus will deliver you according to his timing. And then Jesus will supernaturally take you to the exact shore that he always intended to take you. Kent Hughes sums it up this way, quote, If we are obedient to Christ, there will be plenty of storms. 
there will be danger and difficulty and weariness and exposure and anxiety and dread and sadness. We will be open to an index of sorrows and stresses which are unknown to the uncommitted heart. But take cheer. Christ sees all and knows what we feel when we feel alone and the fear that no one seems to know about or care about. He prays for us even while we are in the storm. He comes to us in the midst of the gale, treading on the problems that afflict us, unquote. Jesus set you there. Jesus sees you there. Jesus will save you there. And Jesus will safely deliver you to the shore where you need to to go. Remember, perfect love casts out fear. That's the expulsive power of love. Have you ever seen a woman who was terrified of rats? Ew, a rat! Put that same woman, give her a broom, and a bear and have that bear attack her children and now all of a sudden the woman has the strength of Samson and David because you know what it isn't about her anymore you're threatening her children and when you're threatening her children fear disappears that's the expulsive power of love more love less fear More fear, less love. Heavenly Father, I pray for each person who's listening. I pray for that person who finds themselves on the teeter-totter between love and fear. And Lord, I pray that you would show up and that you would remind them of your commitment to them. Lord, perfect love casts out fear. Lord, what is it that they fear the most? Lord, I pray that by the power of the Holy Spirit and in the revelation of your presence and circumstance, that you yourself, Lord, would be their provision, their ever-present help in time of need. Lord, I pray that they would experience the very presence of Jesus in love. Speak to us now, Lord. In Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand.